So I think any of the folks listening to this podcast is a PM and working on an old game and facing that, that challenge. My advice would be, how can you increase the amount of players that there are in the game? Can you increase early retention? Can you do branding events with uh, third-party IPs? Can you uh, start maybe a new marketing strategy? Because the cycle of, uh, I have less and less users and I need to make the same amount of revenue, I think that's not sustainable and uh, actually drives games to, to die. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel, and as always, I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grits CEO. On today's episode, we spoke with Javier Barnes. Javier is a specialist when it comes to F2P monetization and has priceless insight in how understanding the ins and outs of game economy models can make or break a game's success. We chat about how economy models can impact a player's perception of a game and their retention, the value of in-depth economy teardowns, and so much more on this episode of Creators at Work. I think it's probably one of the less known parts of mobile gaming development. I mean, it's just, there's just not a lot of information out there about it. Basically, the process you go through in terms of when you research competitors' pricing and spending habits, which is your first sort of bullet to building a, an economy yourself, like let's get into the weeds a little bit about how you go through that. I can tell you at Liquid and Grit, we get pretty intense about it. And how do you first go about, okay, I'm going to build an economy like Legends of Ruterra and I want to study their game first. So for me, one of the critical things when I do research or when I benchmark, even if it's a professional benchmark that I'm doing as a part of creating an economy, I usually don't have the benefit of having an unlimited amount of time. If I could research a game eternally and I could dedicate maybe one week, one month just to check out the economy, I would probably go more in depth. But what I do is I evaluate highly or at least I consider the amount of effort that different activities of benchmarking are going to take me compared to the amount of information that they are going to uh, provide me. And when it comes to benchmarking economy, it's actually kind of difficult because if you had all the economic data of, of a game, like all the prices, all the rewards and so on, doing analysis is relatively easier, significantly easier. Then there's the topic of understanding how that economy affects players, which is much more complex. But at least you have the numbers and juice with the numbers, you can extract interesting insights. So what I do is, for example, I don't try to play the game and record every single transaction that I obtain and every single output of currency that I deliver to the game, because that would take me so much time and I would really have to spend a lot of effort in order to gather enough data so that that becomes valuable. So the activity that I do, which is not as time consuming, is first I try to record or write down what are the in-game prices of different offers and some other products in the game and evaluate their equivalence to fiat currency. So let's say they have this offer which is appearing all the time. It's like 200 gems and that equals, I don't know, 20 bucks. So I, I try to establish that kind of equivalence, kind of map the amount of prices that there is at every single price point in the game. Also taking account, because there are some products that are really cheap, but you need to buy over and over again in order to actually use it or actually 
actually deliver value to you as a player. I'm thinking, for example, a gacha where you or a loot box where you're looking for a very specific thing. And so even if it's one cent every roll or 50 cents every roll, you're going to roll over and over again. So I, I try to map the structure of pricing. And I think that's very good revealing of what, what is their pricing strategy. And that's a very good indicator on the spending habits of the game audience. So if, if it's very young audience, they're very likely going to be aiming for having a more significant amount of lower prices. And then some other games, 4X, for example, maybe they barely have nothing there and all the price points are like really high because they are taking account that their audience are really big spenders. And maybe some other games, what they do is the way they structure the purchases, they kind of limit or they kind of gate the sweet spot of spending at a very low spending, like maybe 10 bucks or 20 bucks per month because they are aiming to an audience that basically don't have a lot of money, but instead they try to make them generate a high lifetime value by, by making them spend like a small amount of money, but every single month. So yeah, I, I use that kind of strategy try to map the pricing structure. Just to get super tactical on this, but are you writing this out in Excel or how yeah, are I you? Use, I use, yeah. No, I use Excel. So then are you mapping out the entire economy or just the pricing? I mean, depends on, on what kind of analysis I want to establish. I think that the, one of the first things that I do is to map the pricing and uh, also the IAP structure, the relationship between the different IAP packs, the discount ratio and stuff like that. Because what I found is that the discount ratio of the IAP packs, it's very revealing also of what kind of spending habits the, the audience have. So. There are some games that put the biggest increments of discount ratio on the middle packs because they're aiming for a, an audience that spends lower. So what they're trying basically is to lift the amount of spending from players that would not spend that much money. While there are other games that put the biggest increments of offer ratio on the higher packs because they basically want people to buy the 99 bucks price. So yeah, I write everything on Excel. I first focus on IAP, then I want to mapping the prices on other currencies. The last thing I would probably do, and honestly, I've done it very, very little times, is for example, trying to map the balance of every single transaction, like, okay, level three, how much currency does it take you to reach level three in Clash of Clans? Because you need to map so many inputs and to gather so much information that it's, it's difficult. Instead, what I've tried to do to avoid that is model the system. And once you model the system, you kind of understand what is the, the balance involved on it. And how, how are you modeling the system if you're not doing the entire economy? So I model it, like I build the core loop and I build the different, so it's it's a visual model. It's not a, a model visual where, model. God, yeah. it's not an economy so, strategy. I'm curious because I'm looking at, for example, a economy spreadsheet that we did of a top grossing core app. And to give you a sense of the depth, I think there's 160 columns in this tab where we're tracking the game experience. So 160 different inputs from the economy on one row. And then the player, we have analysts go through and play and every single engagement, they're inputting all 160 of the inputs, and then they're doing it to next engagement. And then we'll do that for a set amount of weeks. And then we'll do that for a certain amount of players. And then we'll analyze the economy based on that data. We sometimes do multiple player types, like a non-player, a light payer, a medium payer, and a heavy payer, depending on what the client wants. What do you think about that as a, a way to understand the economy? Yeah, I mean, that is extremely valuable. Honestly, I think that is one of the points where your company adds a lot of value. Because if I'm trying to benchmark a, a game economy, 
I just cannot go that much in depth without spending a significant amount of time. Rather than me spending one month gathering all that information, which would mean that I'm exclusively doing that, I would hire you. The thing is, whenever I do benchmark, for example, on the article that I wrote about pricing, I talked about the steps of, uh, the, like, how can you do steps in when it comes to benchmarking that are not time consuming, so even small teams can afford to do them without, you know, investing a lot of time and yeah. resources on that. Totally. I mean, um, these are huge projects. We have one project, just to give you an example, where we spend over $10,000 in in-app purchases alone, just to give you a, a sense of the scale of some of these projects. Realistically, not even big companies are going to be able to uh, afford that kind of benchmark internally. It's much cheaper to go to a yeah. third-party company like yours and gather that information because that's yeah. putting a lot of people into work. And I've worked in some big teams and uh, even in big teams, you don't want to make somebody spend uh, or, or a group of people spend several weeks or, or months benchmarking. You just cannot afford it with and then keep a realistic deadline for uh, your, your game. But definitively having... All the information, like when you have the entire information or the entire data set of an economy, it's much more easy to extract uh, insights. Yeah. Last night I had this fever dream. I mean, this is how like my company <laughs> is. But I was thinking that insights and research, I think that's really increased where almost all companies are pretty focused on research and insights way more than they were. I think economy is the next level. Like there are some companies that we work with who are very intense about it and they do very well with it. And I'm kind of thinking that the next chapter in mobile gaming is deeper deconstructs of games because I I do think game teams are relying on even our pretty heavy deconstructs aren't heavy enough. So my fever dream was like, I'm going to even go like way even more. Like we're talking massive economy teardowns where like you have complete understandings of economies. Do you think that's a, a correct assumption that like more companies are going to want that level of detail on economies or incorrect? That's a very good question. Um so what I think it's, uh, of course, companies are going to want to have, like if you offer them several possibilities, they are going to want to have the deep analysis that they can. I think it also has to do with what's, or at least in my opinion, what's going to be the actual capacity of companies to effectively use that information. Because if I have, like, I crap every single piece of information of, of a game and I get to see the insights, maybe I'm not able to transform that into valuable insights. So I think that the key thing is not necessarily having all the information, although the more information that you have, the more chances you have to build good insights, but having the right amount of information and having the capacity to process it uh, appropriately. So you can have a lot of information, but not make any sense out of it. Or you can have maybe 75% of that information and extract highly valuable uh, insights. In that regard, I, I think, again, the value there is not necessarily knowing, or at least in, in my, my experience, it's not necessarily knowing if that number was a five or if it was a six, if they give five coins or six coins, but rather understanding what is the high level strategy that they're trying to carry out with that and be able to transform that into insights, learnings, or opportunities that you can exploit with your game. So in my opinion, although I think that definitively the quantity of information uh, when it comes to game economies from other games that companies are using, probably it's not very high. It, 
it should be higher. I think that the key thing is quality. How well that massive information is translated into actions and into essentially learnings. Also, another big element is how can you transform that or how can you extract the information of subjective elements related to elements on the economy, right? Like perception of if the game is generous or not, perception of if the game is worth investing or not. Like those kind of things are, are tricky, at least, to extract from pure data. So sometimes I think that grooming that information and, and the processing it is, is perhaps even more valuable than, than just having a lot of it. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things we do to solve that is we actually have Likert score questions for our analysts to answer as they're playing the game. So it'll be like, do you feel like you have enough currency to, uh, you, fe- you feel like you have enough currency to advance? Right. And then the Likert scores would be, I completely agree. I agree. I moderately agree. I don't agree. I very much don't agree. You know, and then they, they score it. We haven't, our, the results have generally been pretty in the middle, but it's one way that we get at more of what you're talking about, which is that perception of the experience rather than the actual experience. Right. I mean, even though the numbers may say something, that doesn't mean the player is interpreting it that way. I think the second thing that you brought up, which is really interesting, is how do you use that information? Right. If I do a complete teardown of a core app and have every economy information, how am I going to apply that to my own app? We get around this by we would tear down your app as well. So we compare the two. But I think if the games aren't very similar, it is hard to make recommendations about what you should do if game A uses a completely different economy system and game B does. But I think the most value is in when you're constructing a game and and building your new game, because then you can formulate an economy very similar to a competitor's or top grossing game. That's probably where the biggest value lies, right? Like if you're going to go after the newest, hottest game and you want to know their economy, I think I'm going to start pushing this. I think I'm going to start selling to companies like massive economy turnouts. We have like 10 to 20 analysts playing the game, like complete understanding of your app, their app, like progression curves, different player types, multiple progression curves. So you can like see averages, medians, the whole nine, standard deviations. That is definitely useful. In my opinion, it's super useful for companies that are close competitors. Like if I um, uh, play Rex, it's not enough to have a high-level visualization of what Match Royale is doing, especially for for those are companies where like every single small advantage represents uh, a significant change in the position, like you becoming the number one or number two in the genre. I, I think on those kind of companies are the ones that are going to get more value from having a super in-depth breakdown. And again, I think that in general. The reason why you need the, I mean, excluding that case, the reason why you need a lot of information about the game economy is because you're trying to reverse engineer. You need all that information because you're trying to build a big picture. And it's very, very difficult to build the high picture of an economy if you don't start with the bottom up, let's say. So again, like having all that information, that's why I said that at the end of the day, it's not that much about the quantity but about the quality, is that information going to be able to help you get the big picture? Because in in terms of game economy, you raised that uh, before in the conversation. You said that 
two games are not necessarily extremely similar, it's very difficult to compare the uh, economy. But the thing is, like, even competitors on the same genre, they generally follow different economy models and they maybe have different uh, features, which are their unique selling points. So, of course, they cannot cut them, which actually make make their economies very uh, different and in my opinion the key thing is understanding what what is the strategy that each game is following what kind of economy model do they have on 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 the high level because that's going to determine those small numbers right like if in racing rivals for example because of their that economy burns cars because you can bet your car and you can lose it. And then actually on the Turf Wars, the Clan versus Clan uh, feature, when you earn a car, you need to destroy it. Because that game burns the car, they have significantly cheaper car prices compared to their competition. It, it, it's not necessarily that they're trying to be cheaper. It's just that the model that they have allows them and re- kind of requires them to be uh, cheaper, which incidentally, it's great for the users because they can get the cars, which is the obvious thing that you want in a car game in a much cheaper way. And I think what you're touching on is that there's an art and science to it when you're creating these economies. And just taking the spreadsheets and looking at them isn't going to create the best experience, right? And there's there's that human element, that creativity, that emotional element, that intelligence that we have after doing something a lot that creates beautiful art or beautiful economies or beautiful games or whatever is created next. And one of the things that drew my attention in your article is the the non-incremental curves, right? And when we do the teardowns of economies and we see these just like math model curves, when I see a curve that's just like a 20% increase in difficulty, every single level, it, it, it's like, I, I already know that the design wasn't done as well as it could be. And then when I see the the peak and valley curve systems, that's when I know that the, this is a well-designed economy system. You know, let's talk about maybe, I mean, if you're okay with talking about some of the things that you've kind of learned through this economy process of, of mechanics like that, that have worked well, I'd love to get your thoughts. No, I, I definitely agree with uh, your point of view on on the fact that not only with with difficulty, but also with the uh, acquisition of content, the amount of time required to reach specific milestones and elements like that, you cannot have a purely incremental uh, curve. It is tricky. It is tricky because you can have a purely incremental curve on the demand of resources, but also on the acquisition. So actually your amount of time that you spend to gather those resources are the same. But in general, like incrementally difficulty curves act as a natural selection element and actually reduce the population on your game. It's like eating a soup and every spoon you take, you put more spicy stuff at the end. Nobody's going to be able to eat that, right? Because free-to-play games, they are services. They try to keep players playing for as long as possible. Only thing that you cannot afford is to kick those players out of, of the game. I think that the best way to do that is to model first difficulty so that the challenge, maybe there are some challenges presented that are harder, some other challenges presented that are easier easier. They oscillate in a way that they they never reach a point where you cannot absolutely, you're never going to be able to surpass that point. And uh, the same thing happens when uh, thinking on player spending. Like if the game at the beginning of the game is going to require you 10 bucks per month, but then when you are one year into the game, it's going to require you $100 per month and then $1,000. Like at some point, you're going to leave that ship, right? And you're not going to just be a customer. And in fact, 
I think right now, one of the trends that we're seeing is our games that put a lot of focus on their economies and on their systems design in order to be manageable, both in terms of time and in terms of uh, monetization, so that they can uh, become a uh, habit. Uh, maybe on the other side of the spectrum would be Top 11, which is a game that I love. Whenever I play Top 11, I have to choose between my life or Top 11, because every single minute of my time that I have, if I'm into Top 11, I need to be playing Top 11. And every single <laughs> cent that I have, I would have to spend it on that game. This is maybe a game that I can play for six months and be like, my life is about that game, but I cannot keep it as a, as a habit. While some other games like Brawl Stars or Hearthstone or Legends of Runeterra, those are games that I can keep on my regular life because they don't ask me insane amounts of money every month, but rather they require me the same amount of money that I would spend on a Netflix subscription. And also they require me an amount of time that allow me to work and, and, and see my family. This is one of the trends that we're seeing right now, right? Like those games are trying to become more effective at becoming part of the player's life for a very long time. And even if on the short term, their lifetime, uh, sorry, in the short term, the value that they generate, the revenue that they extract from users is not necessarily that good. If I keep on spending a certain amount of time for many, many, many months, eventually I'm going to build up a very high uh, lifetime value. That's an awesome, yeah, that's an awesome point. I mean, I think that particularly as as we think about being responsible game developers, right, is building these economies that don't push people outside of a healthy lifestyle is, is kind of what you're getting at, which I think is a really awesome point. And it's something that we talk about in a lot of our reports often. When gotchas, for example, when people started showing the percentages of gotchas that they might get and, and, and doing other responsible game development tactics, I think this is one that's important because if you have a great game, that game can last decades. As you think about the economy, I think what you're getting at is you don't want to have this economy that just gets to the point where it's unbearable. It's like you want to build the economy system so that it it pushes the player and actually gets to that point where the player's challenge is at an optimal point. And then it kind of slows the pushing of it if it goes too far. I can see that being sort of like a predictive model type system in the future with economy systems. But you basically have the leveling challenge curve testing the limit of what players can handle without without dropping off and saying like, this is this is not sustainable. Also, because again, as responsible game developers, I think one of our biggest basically risks for all of us is governmental or societal backlash around mobile gaming because it's gotten to an unhealthy level. And I think we all have to be responsible stewards of the market to not have our games do what you're kind of telling me uh, top 11 did to you, which is like get you to a point where you can't do your job. Well, to be know? honest, I wasn't I wasn't talking that much about like ethical stuff. Right. I know, is, but it, that's what I heard, is, you yeah. know, like in some ways, I know there's product managers and game designers out there that are going, well, yeah, but I'm making money, right? Like, it, like the money's going up, money going up. And what I'm saying is like the black swan, like unpredictable backlash is that the player just is like, this is not sustainable. And then you do that on a, like a global level and you have every mobile gamer, every mobile gaming company doing that, like pushing players to unhealthy levels. I feel like that is the backlash. I mean, free-to-play mobile games uh, are extremely long life, which means that sustainability is the, the key thing. Actually, depending on how you structure the goals for your game and your company, you can actually 
be harming the capacity of your game or the incentives for the developers to keep the game sustainable? Because say, if you put a goal that is, let's say, extremely ambitious and you are going to give a huge bonus if the game generates that much revenue at the end of the semester or whatever, that can incentivize the game to, or the, the, the game team or in the depths to burn all the bridges to reach there. And I actually have seen that, especially when it comes to discounts, like, okay, you need to achieve this type of revenue at the end of the semester. So at the end of the semester, you run a super aggressive uh, discount that uh, essentially overruns the economy with hard currency. And then sure, you make a lot of money on that specific milestone and everybody gets their bonus and it's awesome. But then the capacity of the game to generate revenue after that milestone, it's extremely, like, it's difficult because the economy is so overflowing with resources that people doesn't need to pay for anything. That's actually very uh, important. I actually think that because a lot of my ex experience has been with games with a strong legacy. I was a lead game designer for uh, Monster Legends, and I entered in the game when the game was already uh, four years old. And I think that one big challenge that product managers face is the fact that on old games, you're getting less installs than before because your game is old, you're, you know, uh, the technology is worse. Maybe you have depleted a significant amount of your existing user base on the market and, and stuff like that. And then at one point, if you want to keep the game generating as much revenue, it's not that much about increasing the population, but rather like, okay, how can I extract more money from my current players. And if you keep doing that over and over again, I mean, it works, you will increase the RPPU, but it actually generates this kind of negative cycle where your user base is not growing, it's actually probably diminishing. And every new feature uh, or every new month, you're asking more and more from your core audience that has been there forever and, and actually they spend a lot, right? Because if I have less and less players, I ask more and more money from each of them, right? And uh, I think that is a very bad way <laughs> to manage a game because that model is not sustainable. You cannot ask a 10% more increase on their monthly spending from your users. Like at some point, that's going to kill your population. So I think any of the folks listening to this podcast is a PM and and it's working on an old game and facing that that challenge. My advice would be that focus on the on the features uh, aim to increase the amount of money uh, that players spend, but also how can you increase the amount of players that there are in the game? Can you increase early retention? Can you do branding events with uh, third-party IPs? Can you uh, start maybe a new marketing strategy? Because again, the cycle of uh, I have less and less users and I need to make the same amount of revenue, I think that's it's not sustainable and uh, actually drives games to, to die. I agree. And one of the things that we've actually seen in our teardowns is some of these top crossing games allow players to actually play indefinitely. It's sort of like the, the monetization through the economy as an opt-in system, which means that if they want to go down to, for example, the lowest cost per spin in a slots app, they can do that indefinitely. They get enough free currency every day that it's almost impossible I mean, for them to run out of coins, right? So they're getting, let's say, $20 worth of free value and the minimum bet, well, actually it's more like five, let's say, and the minimum bet is a, a cent or less than a cent, right? So they can like literally sit there and spin. And with an RTP of 95%, they're not going to run out of coins. 
And what the system is then doing though, is releasing features that are pushing, that incentivize them to increase their bets, right? It's sort of, and they're sort of releasing content that's saying, do you want this collection feature? Do you want to complete this mission? Do you want to win this leaderboard? And then the player is opting into increasing their bet amount. And once the player opts in, the volatility stays the same. And then the player bottoms out and runs out of currency or energy, whatever it is, on their own. And at that moment, the player is most invested in the game because they're really attracted to the collection feature. Or they really want to win the leaderboard. And that's when the game basically allows the player to opt into the monetization. But at any point, the game lets the player say, you know what? I've spent too much, right? I've spent too much or played too many hours or whatever it is and dial back their experience back down to this basically free experience. And it's a, a really interesting change in the, the economy model, which I think five, maybe you know, five, 10 years ago, it was that the economy pushed players to monetize by having them run out of currency, right? Like the squeeze, where's the pinch? And what we saw with a lot of our deep economy systems is that that doesn't necessarily exist. The pinch is an opt-in pinch for players. It's not a forced upon players pinch that so many economy systems or economy creators thought was, was driving revenue, at least with some of the apps. I'm not saying all of them. Interestingly enough, actually, I'm going to counter that with some of the apps that have players who are really interested in having the thrill of, of gambling or the thrill of loss or the excitement of winning. Those games do push players to lose because the excitement of winning is only really exciting if there's a potential for loss. And so those economies are actually the opposite where they're really actually trying to take currency away and kind of have that thrill of like, oh my goodness, I'm about to lose. I'm about to lose everything. So it sort of like goes back to that design for the emotional experience that you want to create. And that's optimal. We do generally ask all of our guests is where you think the puck is headed in whatever you want to talk about in the next three to five years. It could be mobile gaming, it could be entertainment, it could be economy design. I think actually the market, three things are happening at the same time. And uh, the three of them are actually based on the fact that I feel that mobile games are going to experience a kind of a diaspora. They are going to expand in a lot of things. Uh, in a lot of different directions at the same time. I, I think that right now, what we have seen up, up until now was that the mobile markets was kind of a space in games that was growing, was growing, was growing. Right now, it's uh, the biggest part of games. And I think that growth is actually going to even increase uh, because one of the things that I think it's going to happen on the next year's and it's actually happening right now, is the mobile games are stopping of being mobile games. Those these distinctions between different different types of platforms are disappearing. And now what we're seeing is services like Xbox Cloud offering experiences on PC that you can also play on your tablet with cloud gaming we're also seeing mobile games that are being able to play be played on pc we're also seeing games like fortnite where the the same exact experience exists in pc in console and on and on mobile and we're also seeing companies such as netflix that now are expanding from tv to to gaming so i think that essentially Mobile is going to be everything. Basically, those barriers that we see of very strong platforms, which are really related to 
or own history on how we consume those products, they are going to disappear. Because I think that for our younger, for the younger audience that is entering right now in the market, they are basically going to define. Those players, they're not aware that a console is something different from a PC. The type of experiences that you consume on the PC are different from the type of experiences that you could expect to experience on, an, on a mobile. I think that now it's a kind of wibbly wobbly game experience everything and those kind of barriers are going to disappear which is a huge challenge for mobile developers uh, because a lot of mobile developers have benefited from the fact that they didn't need to compete with with the huge companies and also it's going to be b- very challenging for huge companies that want to enter in mobile because they need to learn mobile it's, they cannot apply the same insights that they get from classic platforms so that's the first thing uh, the second I think it's the if it happens we will see and how it happens but the fragmentation of the stores in mobile I think that's going to be huge maybe nothing ever happens on that side because again it really depends on how the live law is written how much time does it take and so on but if that happens or at least that opens the door for more stuff to to happen there I think that's going to mean a, a huge a huge change. It's actually something good for your company because right now a lot of the information that we have from the when we do market research is data from Sensor Tower, from App Annie. And I kind of think those platforms are going to have it way harder to capture the information as more stores enter into the market, more platforms and, and so on. Uh, I think it's it's going to be much more difficult to scrap data. And in fact, we are going to have to rely to human-driven research like your company does. So that's the second thing. I think that that's going to change a lot of stuff. I think that that's go- the, the fragmentation of the stores is something that is going to potentially bring a lot of major developers that now are not in the, in the uh, mobile space. That, and if that happens, again, that's going to mean the growth on a, a lot of products right now are not finding their space like not safe for work games, uh, which are huge in some other platforms, but not on mobile. And I think that's potentially could be something that we see explode in the future, uh, as well as blockchain games. Like blockchain games, I think that they are going to be here to stay. I don't think they're a flavor of the month. I don't think they are going to replace free-to-play just because I think that blockchain games and play-to-earn games, they kind of work on top of a free-to-play economy. They live on top of uh, games as, as a service experience, but I think that they're going to become something something huge. And uh, a lot of people that actually I hear being skeptics ex- about that space kind of remember when I started on mobile games, which was the I started with the with free to play. I mean, with the rise of free to play, that's why I became a specialist of on free to play games. And it remembers to the same kind of arguments and the same kind of reasons that premium developers that basically build premium games used to tell to me, like, free-to-play is a flavor of the month and it will go away in, in some months. And the same thing as, as free-to-play state, I think that, that blockchain games or games that use blockchain technologies is going to be something that it's also going to increase a lot in the future. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks again to Javier for coming on to the show. We hope you guys all enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close this out. 
Okay, we started recording now, but I will say I love Barcelona. It's probably one of my favorite cities in the world. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow, I've never really said that, but probably. Well, I've never really said that, but like I'm trying to think of a a better city than Barcelona, and I can't think of it. Well, he's been recorded on that, so I guess he's (laughs) saying the truth. (laughs) We now have proof of what he said, right?